Gresham College Presents Canaletto's London Legacy by Dr. Pat Hardy. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to give this talk on Canaletto's London Legacy. The Venetian artist Canaletto, um, his dates, as you probably already know, 1697 to 1768, has been very influential in providing a legacy for the image of London. The contemporary commentator John Gwynne wrote in London and Westminster Improved in 1766, quote, The English are now what the Romans were of old, distinguished like them by power and opulence and excelling all other nations in commerce and navigation, unquote. Predominant economic and military strength were the defining features of London in the mid-18th century, and Canaletto was the artist to project this. During his relatively short stay in London between 1746 and 55, he produced a series of strikingly beautiful views of the city, which have provided a new pictorial definition of the capital and influencing the direction of London landscape art for the future. The city, through Canaletto's eyes, looked tidied up, clean and neat, pristine like a glass paperweight, and we see this in his paintings, London the Thames from the terrace of Somerset House towards the city, 1750 to 51, this one, and London the Thames from the terrace of Somerset House looking towards Westminster, again 1750 to 51, both royal collection. When the two pictures are placed together, they create a long panorama of the river, showcasing the main landmarks, St Paul's Cathedral, surrounded by more than um, two dozen of Wren's spires and churches, and Westminster Abbey shown under this brilliant blue sky. Canaletto painted from the terrace of Somerset House, the river stairs are visible in the left foreground, located on the great bend of the Thames, almost equidistant between St Paul's and Westminster, affording these fantastic views. In the view to Westminster, uh, we can see this newly completed Westminster Bridge, the fourth towers of the Church of St John the Evangelist and Westminster Hall, and further to the right, Westminster Abbey and the Banqueting House, all of which survive today, but further to the right is the wooden tower of the York um, Water Works buildings here, um, now destroyed. Somerset House is absent um, from the panorama paintings, but it is shown in this drawing by Canaletto, a um, view of old Somerset House from the Thames. Um, it's undated, held at Yale, Centre for British Art. Somerset House was still technically a royal palace, but had fallen into disrepair to the extent that, for instance, in 1730, Anne of Denmark's bedchamber collapsed. Um, most of the rooms were given over as grace and favour lodgings by the owners, the Prince and Princess of Wales, given at royal whim as a reward for services or compensation for hard times. Somerset House um, had become marooned by this point as a rundown property when the social gravity of London moved west to St James and the Strand deteriorated as a high-class place of residence. Somerset House then did typify the evolution of Georgian society in which monarchical absolutism was replaced by politically divided aristocracy committed to the production and display of wealth it was a society governed by the categorical and unconditional elevation of property as a central tenet, based on Locke, Blackstone and Adam Smith's ideas of celebrating the owner's right to enjoyment of his property. Landed ownership meant the freedom to pursue favoured interests, and one of the most favoured interests was that of government, and government from Westminster. 
The ruling classes therefore perpetuated ideas of personal liberty, predominance of property, protection against foreign competition, minimal internal intervention, and created the conditions for this massive economic surge in the mid-18th century. In harnessing this potential, they also sought to express it by building lavish townhouses and sponsoring civic projects, not only to showcase their wealth, but to facilitate its production. A sign, therefore, of ruin and decay in Canaletto's paintings, there is little. Instead, Canaletto made London look new and beautiful. He gave an unprecedented spaciousness to the visual landscape, which was partly affected by his favoured device of using two viewpoints in a painting some 10 degrees apart, conveying the appearance of a much more open vista than was attainable in practice, the equivalent of the wide-angle view. He did manipulate the landscape, and we can see this in the pen and drawing um, of the city from the terrace held at the courthold, when you compare it with the um, painting below. The viewpoints are slightly different, and the terrace is shown from a slightly different angle in both. So although we're directed to St Paul's Cathedral in both of them by the vertical of this long terrace, um, and by the clustering of the boats and the masts in both, they do both point towards the dome, they're much more defined in the painting, and the buildings are much smaller in the painting in relation to the picture surface, again accentuating this sweep and spaciousness. And the view was engraved um, but in a very popular uh, Rooker engraving in 1750. Um, you can see that it's got titles in French just sort of indicating its popularity. So in this talk, uh, therefore, I would like to explore how Canaletto in effect, reinvented the London landscape and this legacy he left, and the contribution of some other contemporary artists who did help shape the city's image. London was a city ripe for change, a city which expanded massively from the 1750s until at least the mid-19th century, and whose image had to adapt accordingly. And this image was one in which Canaletto played an important, but I hope I'll show far from solitary, role in formulating. So having looked at Canaletto's take on the view from Somerset House, let's look at this legacy. Um, the views um, from Somerset House were extremely popular, and artists, for instance, like William James, demonstrates this in his drawing, St Paul's Cathedral and the River Thames from the terrace of Old Somerset House, sorry, they're slightly repetitive titles, um, 1750, held at the V&A. Um, thought to be a studio assistant of Canaletto, um, James was renowned as a painter of Venice, um, and his views were brought up by Grand Tour patrons. But here, painting London, he shows very much a lightness of touch in depicting the city. The couple on the terrace seem to be dancing along this walkway, admiring the view as they progress, while St Paul's rises gracefully above the surrounding decoratively delineated buildings. Paul Sandby, um, celebrated as the father of British watercolour, produced two panoramic drawings now at the British Museum, um, the same view looking to east and west, clearly influenced by Canaletto's view, but widening it out substantially. Born in Nottingham, he came to London where he worked in the Ordnance Office at the Tower of London as a draftsman. And like Canaletto, he wanted to capture this sweep of the Thames panorama. In both drawings, we see these, what will become increasingly familiar landmarks of St Paul's Middle Temple, Monument, Westminster Bridge, and the depth of the terrace accentuates this idea of London as a parkland with the backdrop of the Thames, where Londoners can walk at leisure, enjoying their surroundings under the shade of trees. 
has very much a sense of <coughs> clean air and spaciousness. Um, he also did an oil um, about 1775, in which Westminster appears much closer. William Daniel, um, hand-coloured equitant of 1805. Um, this is seen from the embankment um, at Somerset House before the construction of Waterloo Bridge of 1805. Um, it's held at the museum, this print. Um, this view um, looks over the terrace of the recently built Adelphi Terrace beside Somerset House on the north bank looking down towards Westminster. So it's one of six views of London that he did, a very flat work um, which introduces black smoke emitted by the factories in Southwark. As late as the 1870s, the artist John O'Connor produced two views of this section of the river, comparing it to before and after the construction of the embankment, a major civic project aiming to create, as you know, this barrier between um, the Thames and the riverbanks um, in order to build the huge sewer designed to clean up the Thames. This first painting by O'Connor shows York Watergate and the Adelphi from the river, 1872, and Somerset House is set back from the river with the focus instead on York Watergate and the Adelphi Terrace. It shows the position before the major um, engineering achievement of the embankment. By contrast, the painting, The Embankment of 1874, um, they're both held at the museum, um, looks towards St. Paul's Cathedral and Cannon Street up here. And we start to see the spaciousness to the city again, over 120 years after Canaletto's similar view. It's, very, um, it's a very bright, um, lively picture. You have sunlight catching the gleam of regularly spaced gas lights, which have just been installed, and the bayonets of the red-coated grenadiers marching towards their barracks at the tower. It's a very uncongested road, um, atypical today. Uh, stretching in a broad ribbon to a skyline that combines order and tradition in the form of the Gothic Hall of Middle Temple and state and spiritual authority in the shape of St. Paul's and the technological present and future in the gasometers here, um, whose rounded domes echo the dome of St. Paul's. You have the smoking factory chimneys, the steaming railway train and the gleaming new train shed um, at Cannon Street, again, whose rounded domes catch the eye and add symmetry to the composition. The work is animated by the fresh greenery of the young saplings here, again, newly planted, um, recently installed, and the glistening surface of the river. The figure of the nursemaid looking down upon the embankment and the soldiers um, creates this sort of vignette of domesticity and also mimics the position of the viewer looking down upon the scene. The contradictions in the painting are carefully reconciled. You have lowly and grand, peace, military preparedness, leisure, employment, particular, general. But, and it's a painting which is very much of the moment, but at the same time does draw upon these past artistic conventions. And in particular, the interest shown in views of the river from this key spot, the terrace of Somerset House. So the idea of London, introduced by Canaletto, which has become embedded in our consciousness and which has been emulated by these later artists, is stately, shimmering, sunny, populated with figures which provide interest and colour. It was a new, unprecedented vision of mid-18th century London, which was very influential. But this view was founded upon a solid topographical landscape, artistic tradition, which was flourishing in London before 
Canaletto's arrival, and on which it could be argued that Canaletto used um, partly to develop his vision. So I think we do need to have a look, a gaze backwards as well as forwards in working out what was this London legacy. London, as a preeminent city in Europe, was incessantly drawn and painted. Rencester's Holler is a good example, and this is his The Prospect of London and Westminster, taken from Lambeth, 1647, engraving. Holler, born in Prague, moved to Cologne, established himself as a printmaker, met the Earl of Arundel, who brought him to London, where he began to produce commercial prints. London also provided a refuge to Flemish artists arriving, and from the 1670s onwards, following the French invasion of the Netherlands, and they brought their distinctive techniques of flat printmaking and mapmaking. Artists at this time chose to depict the city, stretched out in a line from a bird's eye view taken from the South Bank. In these works, London was often visualized from an indeterminate point in the midair in a very linear format with the emphasis on accuracy of perspective. These landscapes complemented the plethora of maps and panoramas which were increasingly popular as Londoners sought to understand their own city. This is John Roche's uh, new map of 1746, the first new map of London since 1682. He was a Huguenot survivor who lived in Soho. The title of his map was London and Westminster, or even an exact survey of the cities of London and Westminster, the boroughs of Southwark with the country near 10 miles round. This section shows Charing Cross, and Northumberland House. The survey took nine years to measure, and it was 13 feet wide and six and a half feet deep. And it went through eight editions by 1769, indicative of the interest Londoners did feel in their city. Roche was determined that the map should be as accurate as possible, employing detailed techniques, for example, obtaining the true bearings of steeples from different positions in the city using um, trigonometry um, surveyed proportions. There are also a significant number of British-born artists working in London prior to Canaletto's arrival. They were often unknown as they'd been trained through the city guild system operating in London, which Susan Foister in her um, lecture a couple of weeks ago touched upon. As, as she mentioned, from the Middle Ages, all painters working in the city had to join the Painter Stainers Guild which trained heraldic, decorative, mural coach painters, as well as fine artists. Such British artists included one called Samuel Scott and Joseph Nichols, and they were later joined by William Marlowe, um, whose dates were 1740 to 1813. And they all painted the London landscape, ensuring that London was presented as this preeminent capital in the 18th century. But these artists had to work hard to present London in this light, for despite its size and prosperity, Georgian London was not a city to astonish the observer with its lavish modern architecture. The population by 1750 was about 750,000 and growing rapidly. It was a very disorderly city, a rambling series of narrow streets, wood buildings lining the river, and functioning crowded wharves shot through with the muddy waters of the Thames had poor drainage, prevalence of slaughterhouses, unsafe alleys, congestion, and a lack of central planning. And it meant that streets and squares grew up in a haphazard fashion. None of the royal palaces, his Hampton Court, an engraving by Joseph Highmore about 1744, approached continental standards of size or opulence. And number 10 Downing Street was distinctly and deliberately modest. 
The Crown and the Church both lacked the money and the appetite for an extensive building program. And this meant that artists were constrained by what was actually available to paint. And in the absence of grandiose public architecture and royal palaces, had to be content with the few large townhouses which were suitably magnificent or new civic projects like Westminster Bridge. So impressive aristocratic mansions, such as Northumberland House, which occupied about four acres and faced onto the Strand near Charing Cross, with the frontage stretching 162 feet, was somewhat exceptional. As you know, it, stands, um, it stood on the site between the corner of the present Trafalgar Square and Charing Cross Station, fantastic central site. And um, it became um, an eminent um, subject for artists. This is a drawing by Canaletto, um, and this is the finished oil, 1752. <coughs> Built for Henry Howard, first Duke of Northampton, in 1605 to nine, it was in the words of Pevsner, the grandest Jacobean house in London. And it proved um, eminently suitable for Canaletto in his um, drive to attract wealthy patrons to acquire his paintings. Um, what better way to do it than to paint their houses? He appealed to their taste um, by painting their houses and providing this sort of architectural idealism um, which um, assisted the sales. One of the artists I mentioned earlier working in London before Canaletto was Joseph Nichols. Um, the son of an agricultural labourer and apprenticed uh, to a painter stainer in 1713. He also painted Northumberland House. You know, this was about 1750. Um, but interestingly, he called it Charing Cross with a statue of Charles I and Northumberland House. And Canaletto must have seen this. But Canaletto, um, by contrast, when you um, look at the um, drawing and painting he did, he introduces um, not only a, a centrality of the house, but an element of theatricality because he does manipulate the perspectives and he subtly alters the angle of every receding line in order to give Northumberland House more emphasis and therefore created a spaciousness that was absent in the Nichols work. This drawing um, from the Minneapolis Institute is similar to the painting. I mean, the figure groupings are the same, the mother and child down here, um, there's a cart, an arrangement of figures in the centre. But the main difference is the shifting of the viewpoint. So if you keep your um, eye on this in your memory and then look um, to the painting, you'll see that he has moved um, Northumberland House to the centre and um, extracted um, the far right um, set of, set of um, stories. And the, the thinking behind this is that it points to the drawing being presented to the owner of Northumberland House, Hugh Smithson, who requested that more emphasis be given to the house to make not only the painting less of a street scene, um, but also more of a view of his London house, so that he um, removed this section here. Um, Canaletto also ensured that it was very much an effect of a, an Italian summer by using a much lighter ground in his work, very light grey with which he covered the canvas. And he also added these rosy tints um, to uh, disguise any unhelpful London um, fog or smog. So here we have, I would argue, an example of Canaletto following an agenda based on the patrons he knew 
and deviating from a strict topographical accuracy, relying on his theatrical training of creating set designs and creating a very much more beautiful landscape of uh, elegance, light, compositional proportion and human interest, an image of London which was to have a lasting effect. But the new civic building project of Westminster Bridge started in 1739, completed 1750, the first bridge in the middle of London to be built over the Thames for over 600 years was of immense interest to London artists. This view, uh, 1740 by Joseph Nichols, held at the University of Greenwich, gives an idea of the type of picture produced at the time of the bridge. Westminster Bridge, one of the great engineering achievements of the time, greatly improved communications in the city. It represented a new identity for London, the home of political power for an imperial city, a move from Tudor Whitehall and Somerset House in the medieval city. And it's not surprising that Canaletto drew and painted many views of the bridge. For one of the commissioners of the bridge was the same, Hugh Smithson, first Duke of Northumberland, who'd invited Canaletto to come to London and was therefore an obvious recipient. But even Canaletto couldn't escape the backdrop of this constantly changing city, in flux with building and demolition, scarred by the debris of a building site, a, a city which was littered with half-constructed buildings covered, covered in scaffolding and a, wood, and a wooden framework. The paintings and drawings of Westminster Bridge are arguably Canaletto's most important contribution to London. Of the six drawings in the Royal Collection acquired by George III in 1762, five are of Westminster Bridge. This is London, Westminster Bridge under construction, and it shows the fifth pier and the fourth and fifth arches still under construction here, under repair. <coughs> Men are depicted at work on the bridge in the several small boats and lively interest on the quayside. In Westminster Bridge, with a distant view of Lambeth Palace, these wooded hills at the back are a compositional invention. Um, on the right-hand bank, you see um, the, you know, the Westminster Cluster, and we have Lambeth Palace in the centre. And it shows um, the bridge before all the turrets um, which surmounted the piers of the arches were completed, so it can be dated. Its architect, um, Charles Lubile, wrote that the bridge was, quote, not only a very beautiful, but a most lasting, useful, and necessary communication between the neighboring counties, a considerable means towards the increase of trade, manufacture, and the useful arts, and a very great ornament to the capital of the British Empire. And Canaletto was determined to convey this contemporary view. So through colour, composition, and a manipulation of scenery, Canaletto refocused the London gaze on this bridge. This is London, a view through an arch of Westminster, 1746, again held by the Duke of Northumberland, um, described as a most beautiful view of the City of London, taken through one of the centres of the arches of the new bridge at Westminster. Canaletto presents the bridge as a heroic construction, a celebration of civic prowess, appealing not least to the bridge's sponsors and backers, and manipulating the view to create this striking perspective. The illusion of distance was created by depicting architecture at a slant, running diagonally off the canvas to undetermined horizons. 
He rotated building elevations. He added others, which were invisible from the original viewpoint to perfect the composition. And the Thames itself lent itself to this type of contrivance because its curves could be rearranged to make the background closer or further away, while the roof lines on the waterfront houses could be changed to simplify the architecture, creating sort of this series of receding planes that lead the eye to the middle distance and then out again. Here's his drawing from the Royal Collection. And again, you can see how he sort of simplified the view, making it more spacious in the painting. The British-born artist most closely associated with painting Westminster Bridge is Samuel Scott, and he produced 11 versions of companion pairs of Old London Bridge and Westminster Bridge between 1747 and 61, based on drawings um, produced from 1742, so operating before Canaletto arrived. He was known as an ingenious ship painter, and his marine art reputation has historically overshadowed his abilities as a painter of London landscapes. He was often thought to be derivative of Canaletto. This, um, the building of Westminster Bridge, 1742, held at Yale, has been described as entirely lacking Canaletto's feeling for architecture, his luminosity and skill in composition. But I think this, this sort of view does underplay the experience and ability of Scott as a painter of the London landscape. One of the most memorable of his views of um, Westminster and the one in which he's been most compared to Canaletto is his arch of Westminster Bridge, 1751, held at Tate. Here Scott presents his own vision of Westminster Bridge, concentrating on the monumentality of the structure. And he painted this view five times. The small scale version here suggests that it's the first. The view looks downstream towards the north bank and is likely to be taken from a point on the river near the second arch of the bridge, which he worked up from pencil studies did on, which he'd done on the spot. It fails to depict the underside of the right-hand arch here. And um, that was something that he um, rectified in the final version, um, also held at Tate. <clears throat> and in this version, he also um, corrects what he felt was a too prominent dome um, by making it flatter, and he removes um, the bag um, which um, protrudes from the um, top of the bridge here to make it more of a working um, uh, sort of motif. And he increased the shadowing as well here to make it appear more monumental. His view um, downriver here encompasses various um, patrons' houses. Uh, you've got Montague House, Portland House, um, further up Somerset House and the Water Tower. Um, but the focus is very much Westminster Bridge, um, which pushes forward from the canvas, this cavernous arch emphasizing thickness and solidity and permanence, and with the stonework predominant over this civic skyline of delicately, delicately composed buildings. Um, this heavy vertical pillar contrasts with the rather frail wooden struts of Canaletto's bridge. Um, and his hanging basket here looks um, like a pendulum, and it rather theatrically draws the eye to the dome of St. Paul's, rather than signifying um, the labor involved, which is what Scott wanted to emphasize. 
um, much fewer, fewer boats in Scott's composition, and they're all um, rather carefully ordered, shown as working boats, lined up in a diagonal um, to the spire of this water tower, again, emphasizing labor and commercial, um, commercial nature of the river. Um, the figures of the swimmer and the two laborers, you know, swimmer down here, two laborers up here, um, adding some sort of human everyday interest. Um, and the Scott painting has very much a play of light, I would say, and shade, which is absent from the polished canvases of Canaletto. And this closer viewpoint emphatically points to engineering prowess. Um, this lowering, billowing cloud above um, the bridge lightens as it moves towards the skyline, although still smattered with grey smoke, adding detail to this scene. And by throwing a stronger light on the right side, Scott provides a deeper recess to the central shadow, emphasising um, the texture of the wood and the stone. So Scott's painting shows this huge sensitivity for displaying physicality and emphasising difference in materials. And it's very much grounded in his, in his vision and the fact that he knew the river was a tidal river with all the plays and light and shade which that involved, un unlike this uniform Mediterranean light enjoyed by Canaletto. So Scott therefore uses the perspective given by Canaletto but gives it this specifically London twist which is very in intriguing. Before leaving the bridge, I'll just um, show you um, how um, influenced uh, other artists were. This is Daniel Turner's 1801 Westminster Bridge, showing again this, this view through the arch. <clears throat> but the artist um, who may best be described as the heir um, of Canaletto's legacy um, and who expressed London subjects in this sort of effortless evocation of compositional order um, and with a clarity of depiction, I would say, which is redolent of Canaletto's paintings was the artist, the London-born artist, uh, William Marlowe, um, whose dates, uh, I said earlier, 1740 to 1813, so slightly younger than the Nichols, Scott um, and, and Canaletto um, uh, figures that we've just been talking about. And in fact, um, Marlowe was actually apprenticed to Samuel Scott and probably studied at St. Martin's Lane Academy. He exhibited re regularly at the Society of Artists from 1762, um, then at the Society of Free Artists and the Royal Academy uh, before traveling to Italy. And he's recorded as visiting Rome in 1766. So Marlowe has been described as carrying on where Canaletto left off as the principal painter of the new building developments and engineering projects of London. Now, while this downplays his own experiences and travels in Italy, it's certainly the case that Marlowe actively sought to promote the capital as a place for civic idealism. But Marlowe, um, while concentrating on the river, as did um, most artists, um, he does show a progression um, from the preoccupations of these earlier artists um, in that he turned from Westminster and Westminster Bridge, uh, which had just been newly built when they were operating, um, to focus on the City of London, which is where the centre of attention had turned. He does um, sort of pay lip service to the artistic legacy of Canaletto um, in these ovals, um, the, the 1775 
um, held at the government art collection. Um, again, from um, Somerset House, kind of viewpoint, referencing that preeminence of the spot and capturing the length of the river um, up, up and downstream. But Marlow, um, by the 1770s, did have a new bridge to paint, and that's Blackfriars Bridge, uh, which opened in 1769. And he painted it at least five times. <clears throat> the view um, of Blackfriars Bridge in this painting, it's um, from the south bank opposite Temple Gardens and with the north end of the bridge um, marked by this um, sweep of steps here um, coming down um, to key level. And the buildings um, are viewed through the arch. Again, the device used by Canaletto. And Marlowe also painted this fresh wharf, 1762. It's held at the Museum of London. Um, here he's showing London, the landscape of London as crowded, um, commercial, historic, and exotic, and in flux as building work. Um, fresh wharf um, was the most westerly of the legal keys. The legal keys um, derived their name from the Act of 1558, which restricted trade to keys located between the Tower and London Bridge and where matters um, unloading and loading could be overseen by officials of the Custom House. And Marlowe's chosen this spot to capture um, his take, if you like, of life on the river. The proximity of this quayside to Covent Garden Market is signified by the figure of the Levant merchant and the olive jar. Um, barrels and bales of merchandise are being checked. Um, and it's very much um, a, a working um, scene for goods to be transferred from the river to the market as quickly and efficiently as possible. And the painting itself can be dated by reference to the structures in it, such as St um, Magnus the Martyr Church in Lower Thames Street, um, centrally foregrounded, suffered a fire in 1760, meaning that the roof had to be replaced. And it was also reconfigured in 1762 when new church vestries were built to the south and the aisles were shortened in order to allow new pavement to pass under the church when the road from London Bridge was widened. And this work was completed in June 1763. And we still see a little bit of scaffolding on the church here, um, indicating that the work had started but not yet finished. And the other clue is that London Bridge here is depicted without any shops or buildings and they'd all been removed by 1762, following concerns over congestion and overloading, and also to make way for this road widening project. So we can place the dating of the work to a quite specific period in the middle of 1762. Um, Fresh Wharf um, by Marlowe um, did catch this sort of essence of London, a London that's powered by the engine of trade, fueled by imports, delivered along the Thames, but it's also a constantly changing aspect, attested by incessant building work. Um, and he also wants, so he's captured um, the, the, the London, the future of London, um, the, the London as it currently is in flux, but also there's a nod to the fact that London, um, and in particular, this scene is a historic site. It's the site where civic notices and were read out to Londoners, informing them of important news um, from, medieval, from medieval times. 
So Marlowe therefore differed from Canaletto. He turned his gaze to the city rather than Westminster. Um, Canaletto had only produced one major oil of the city. This is St. Paul's, held at Yale, 1754. Whereas Marlowe produced works like this view of Cheapside, Poultry Street, um, view of Ludgate Hill, here, and then this fantasy, Capriccio, St. Paul's, and a Venetian canal. It's quite a late work, 1795. It's obviously having a bit of fun here. Um, the Grand Canal of Venice flows up Ludgate Hill, uh, which is lined with houses with open shutters, washing is hanging out to dry. There's these ornate open balconies, um, none of which would be very likely uh, in North Europe. The Church of St. Martin, um, here, 1677-84, doesn't obscure St. Paul's as it would have done um, in actuality. And the figures appear to pay tribute to the spiritual authority of St. Paul's. You can't really see it here, but there are blue and white flags here um, lining the route, um, Venetian colours. Um, there's a lot of tonal contrast in the colours of the house and the canal. And it looks quite an open, transparent scene, but the more you look at it, um, the more, I think, detailed viewing results in quite a claustrophobic atmosphere. These steps here um, seem to lead just nowhere into the, into the river. There's nothing, um, there's no boat waiting. The boats themselves prevent a clear passageway. Um, ropes act as a barrier, and there's no obvious way around St. Paul's. Um, the dark shadows of the still water suggest, and I think this is where uh, Marlowe's been quite clever, they suggest a Venetian decay, and there's dirt, and there's decline, mm -hmm. rather than the active life of London um, that he did in this um, view of Ludgate Hill. By contrast, the Capriccio, the atmosphere is slightly more of disjuncture and fragmentation, and fragmentation um, because he's fusing two cities. Um, he's using an illusionistic painting technique favoured by Canaletto, um, but he's highlighting the very different characters of London and Venice. <clears throat> so, but Marlowe's masterpiece may lie in his depiction of the Adelphi Terrace on the river, held at the museum um, upstairs, which has a very definite reference to Canaletto. It's a popular view, um, and it relates to the very first set of views from Somerset House, which we looked at earlier. Canaletto also focused on this section of the view, but obviously much earlier. Um, this is his The Thames at Westminster, 1750, um, held by the National Trust, which shows um, our old friend, the York Watergate um, and the York Buildings um, Waterworks Tower, um, towering in the foreground, looking towards Westminster Bridge. This is before the building of the Adelphi Terrace. Canaletto may have been working from Samuel Scott's earlier version here, um, which is held at Tate, um, but very much by the 1770s, the focus of interest of the public, of the artistic buying public and of artists, was this new building of the Adelphi Terrace of Houses. Shown in these prints, we've got Pastorini's view on the, on the upper um, level, sorry, and um, Benjamin Green on the lower. And William Daniels, again, very rather flat graphic view. These are all um, at the museum. Uh, but instead, we're looking at Marlowe, um, 1771 to two, um, drawn from the site of the current Waterloo Bridge. Um, so you can imagine you're standing on Waterloo Bridge. 
looking south towards Westminster Bridge and Westminster Abbey, um, with the banqueting hall, um, horse guards all down here, um, and the York uh, sort of marker of the, the waterworks tower. The Adelphi itself, um, very prestigious residential development, um, built to be level with the Strand um, by the Adam brothers, um, who took a 99-year lease from the Duke of St Albans. Um, they sought to reclaim um, the shallow bay here um, and erect a wharf and terrace um, in order to provide residential um, buildings and to get uh, rentals. Um, it was conceived very much as a unified architectural mass with this natural splendour of size and symmetry. And it did attract some celebrity figures to move into the houses like David Garrick, um, but it proved to be a financial disaster. Um, the level of the wharf was built too low, so it wasn't possible to um, rent out the vaults here because they were just flooded um, all the time. And that was how another way they were going to get income from them, storage for shops on the Strand. Um, also, fashionable society had moved out as the river had become more cluttered, congested and dirty. So Marlowe's um, painting rather cleverly captures this contrast between the airy structure of this classical building for which all these high hopes um, were, were propagated and the, and the labour required to build it. So there's a lot of rubble here um, and it's shown piled up waiting to be disposed of. And then there's commercial activity by this unloading of coal and again, they're very much working boats on the river. And the river itself um, looks slightly darker. You have the play of light with the sky and the, the contrasting tidal, um, conveying the, t the, the, the element of this, the fact it's a tidal working river. So Canaletto's arrival um, sparked a major reassessment of how London was perceived and how it perceived itself. Of his 48 English subjects, 35 are of London. Artists working in London before his arrival were compelled to take note of Canaletto and to refine their existing techniques, viewpoints, compositions and styles. And this was aligned to the increasing confidence in the achievements of urban development and how to portray them. As London grew, it became for artists a topographical grammar in which images of churches, aristocratic residences, government, civic and trade buildings and bridges were all produced for orientation, promotion, souvenir. London was viewed as expanding in concentric circles rather than linear horizons. And after Canaletto left, a set of painters continued to innovate in their work. Turner's first oil painting of Venice in 1833 was called Ducal Palace and Bridge of Size, Canaletto painting, it's held at Tate. And here we see, just here on the far end, um, an artist, Canaletto, in operatic costume, standing on a plank in the water in front of a huge gilt framed canvas on an, evil, on an easel, in front of which is the molo, which um, apparently is rather inaccurately drawn. The Athenaeum on the 11th of May, 1833, thought that Turner had superseded Canaletto in artistic prowess, describing Turner's picture as, quote, more his own than he seems aware of. He imagines he has painted it in the Canaletti style. The style is his and worth Canaletti's 10 times over, unquote. 
But the imprint of Canaletto was instrumental in ensuring that London was viewed as an imperial capital, with links to European cities, carrying on a painterly tradition of the Italian Renaissance celebrating light, water, exceptional building and historic tradition, and the patronage of an English elite broadening its horizons to embrace the continent. The London-based artists took up the challenge of the Italian visitor and created their own grounded views, which have endured and delighted us until today. Colourful, innovative, affluent, conscious of London's past, but prepared to embrace its messily, messy and disorderly present, and determined to create an image of power and prestige for the future. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to the Gresham College website, www.gresham.ac.uk.